0: Your federal government was saying to artists, we value you, you're important to the life of this country. And then all of a sudden, it's like, not only do we not think you're important, but now we're gonna vilify you.
1: This is Create Now, the show that explores creative and generative approaches to changing the systems that rule our world. We are sector agnostic, and our guests come from a myriad of different disciplines and practices, but they all share one thing in common. They are people who are creatively rethinking and remaking sectors once thought unchangeable. On this episode, I speak with Ruby Lerner the founding executive director of the pioneering organization Creative Capital. Begun in 1999 with a radical new model for providing long-term financial support and training for artists, they have helped over 600 artists realize their projects and build sustainable practices. And their professional development program has reached nearly 15,000 artists in over 700 communities nationwide. I'm Robert Rancic and this is Create Now. To Bennington College and the Center for the Advancement of Public Action um, it's really thrilling to have you here what is particularly exciting is that you were the founder of Creative Capital and I was hoping that you would go back and talk a little bit about the landscape in the art world at the time in the late 90s when you were beginning to conceive it and then also launch and what were you seeing as the needs of artists then and what you had hoped uh, Creative Capital would provide them?
0: If we go back in time, we can uh, remember that that was a time of great crisis in the, in the arts. The National Endowment for the Arts was um, under assault by Congress and the, there were eventual decisions to really stop most of the programs that were providing individuals with, with support. And the NEA had really always been a leader and a beacon um, in that world, and it um, triggered a lot of other activity at the regional, state, and local levels. And so having that gone was really pretty brutal. Um, and I think there was something else that did not go um, acknowledged, and that was that, you know, up until that moment, the government was saying, your federal government was saying to artists, we value you. You're important to the life of this country. And then all of a sudden, it's like, not only do you, we not think you're important, but now we're going to vilify you. So it was it was brutalizing in a lot of ways that I think we weren't calculating. It wasn't just that the money went away, it was that the uh, legitimacy and the stature went away with it. Um, There were a lot of conversations that that started in the mid to late 90s when this activity, you know, when the NEA was first um, sort of unfunded, when the individual artist work was unfunded. And um, there were, you know, conferences and there were papers commissioned and there was a lot of talk and no one was doing anything. And so Arch Gillies, who was the president of the Andy Warhol Foundation at that time, went to his board and he said, you know, the time for talk is, is long past. Somebody needs to do something. I think if we take a leadership role, I will be able to convince some of our colleagues to come along. And they said, that's great. And you know we'll make a tentative commitment uh, right at the end of the year. Um, I was running um, a national filmmakers organization, AIVF, the Association for Independent Video and Filmmakers in New York. Um, I get this phone call out of the blue saying, I wanna start this thing, I'm not gonna do it if I can't raise at least five million dollars because that's what it will take to get it up and running. It's not enough, that's not enough, but it's enough to try things and fail. I mean, I feel like this is a really important part of the story, but you know, usually there's not enough time to tell because Arch really saw that it had to have a culture of experimentation itself organizationally, not just that it would be supporting experimental and innovative artists, but that it itself would be an experiment. Um, And in fact, um, we got little stamps made in our early years that just said, try this. And we would just stamp every piece of paper with try this. And that was sort of the, the ethos of the organization in the early years. And because I'd had a long history of running film organizations, also running the the miraculous organization, Alternate Roots, and then having worked more conventionally in, in New York theater in the 70s at the Manhattan Theater Club, I think they felt that I had the the breadth, um, even though I didn't have a history in the visual arts, which is also pretty interesting, but I had worked in in independent film and and performance, and so I think they felt that I would I had been an artist advocate for most of my professional career, and that that would be, you know, that that would be good, because i had been doing the other job for seven years. So I didn't have a current resume. So it's kind of a wild personal story um, that I, I, I love telling to young people for a couple of reasons, because one, it, it speaks to the other things that you do in your life that lead you to the things that you end up doing that might be most consequential. I was 50 when we started Creative Capital and to be honest I mean I think I think so many young people are way smarter than I was at 50 but I couldn't have done that job one day before the day I was hired, because I needed the accumulation of all of those experiences in order to to actually have both the confidence in in the ideas, um, and also the actual sort of, you know, technical ability to make some of these things happen. Um, I think that's an important part of the story. I think the other important part of the story that's, that's um, a little sadder to me in, in some ways is the moment that we were founded was, in some respects, the last great economic moment in the history of the country. It was the late 90s, and it was the dot-com boom, and all of those foundations that funded us in the early years could take a chance on something new because they had a lot of excess capital floating around, and they could fund a new, new crazy idea without cannibalizing any of the other important things that they were supporting. And that's a very important part of the story.
1: Sure. You know, uh, one you, you just talked about capital, right? And there was excess capital that was available to fund this, this idea that may or may not take shape today. What is especially fascinating to me is at that moment, you looked beyond the art world for models that you might adapt and use in this new funding structure and I wonder if you can talk about that.
0: Yeah so the the obvious one and the one that we sort of you know promoted the most was the idea of looking at um, how venture capitalists work with with young businesses and um, I didn't know doodly squat as we say in the south about venture capital when I was funded and so I, you know, I did just even a rudimentary, you know, sort of um, uh, look at investigation into how, you know, venture capitalists work with young businesses and I thought, oh my gosh, not only is this not weird, it is so logical. Why haven't we been doing this in our field for the last 25 years? And really it is a success methodology. I mean, that's how I think of it. And that doesn't mean it guarantees success, but it creates the conditions for success. And so, um, and again, success in in my view as defined by the creators, as defined by the artists. So that was um, exciting to me that there was this methodology that we could kind of borrow from. But you know, it, it it was and continues to be a great sort of postmodern moment. And so I wanted to look at other things that interested me. So I looked at things like the mutual aid societies that immigrant communities create when they, when they move to a new country. So they set up these systems so that the next generation of immigrants doesn't have as hard a time as, as they had. So that seemed to me like a way to think about building a, a kind of system of generosity. I mean, I looked at um, you know, low, um, uh, you know, low interest loan programs like the uh, Mohammed Yunus work, um, at the Grameen Bank. And so I, I just pulled together a lot of these things and allowed them to kind of filter. So again, looking at um, at venture capital um, and thinking about the, the monetary support that venture capitalists provide, but then the non-monetary support that they also offer. Um, my history in the arts was having done a lot of work with um, technical assistance for organizations. And the kinds of things that historically have been available to organizations, even small and mid-sized organizations, just have been way less available to artists. So I knew that I wanted that to be a component. So obviously we were supporting the creation of work. That was super important. So obviously money was gonna be a big part of the equation, and the awards were um, right from the beginning up to $50,000. So it's money, it's a lot of meetings, so there's a lot of interaction, and then there is mentorship. So um, you, we make a lot of people available to the artists that we work with in and, and all kinds of ways. So the first category is supporting the project. This is not a fellowship. This is not go sit on a mountaintop. We think you're a genius. It's really what do you want to accomplish during the period of time that you're working with us? And I should say that period of time turned out to be anywhere from, you know, three, two, three years to a decade. So, and we were there with those artists and with those projects during that that period, during that whole period, because we did not dictate. We didn't say, you have to do this in 18 months. What would the point of that be? This is another way that we ran counter to, I think, the the sort of uh, traditional wisdom. It's like, here's a grant, you need to be done in 12 months or 18 months. And creativity just doesn't happen on a, you know, somebody else's timetable. It has to be, you know, when you are ready um, for the work to, to move forward. Um, and I think that could be a reason that, I mean, it's one of the things I've thought about because we've, as you know, a lot of creative capital artists have achieved quite amazing um, amounts of success. And I wonder if, you know, not just the money and not just the services, which I'll talk about in a second, but the, the role that time played in the equation to give people that, that luxury of time to actually vision and maybe unvision and then revision. Um, the work. And I, I mean, it's hard to say scientifically if that's true, but it, but I, I have a suspicion that it probably is. So supporting the project is, is very important. But as Sean Elwood, one of my fellow staffers at Creative Capital used to say, you know, pretty much the moment we have made a commitment to a project, we go on a journey with a person. And so there we're looking at how do we help people leave us stronger than when they came in? And so there we looked at skills building because most, as I said, most individuals did not have access at the time we were starting at the, in the late 90s to great workshops that would help them think long-term about their, their life and work. So what her had you heard the term strategic planning, really, honestly, before we, we sort of worked with this brilliant strategic planner um, to help people think about the wedding of, of life and work and over a long um, period of time. Um, and um, and then hardcore skills in PR and marketing and fundraising and you know presenting yourself um, on the internet and using social media and all those kinds of tools that you just must have as a 21st century artist in order to, to thrive. Um, something that we understood at the beginning, but that took us a long time to um, to actually, I think, get it right or close to right, was the financial piece of this because that's something people don't really want to talk about. But a lot of artists are very conflicted about money and a lot of times they're in distress about money. They have debt they don't want any, they don't want to talk about. Um, and even success is a challenge because they're looking at their neighbor next door, who's an artist who's maybe not as successful, and so they don't know even how to uh, capitalize on success, or um, you know, or, or really even talk about it. And therefore, they often sabotage themselves in, in that success. So, I mean, there's so many, you know, we could just the stories go on and on. We did not want that to to happen. But we, it took a long time to figure out the right formula for having those conversations. We found this amazing certified uh, you know, uh, accountant and rabbi. So I like to say you can have your spiritual and financial needs all met by the same person. And he's absolutely amazing. If you can imagine this, a room full of artists geeking out on the accountant. I mean, it was it's a sight to behold. Anyway, he's pretty amazing. Um, so we brought him in. And then the third person that we lucked into is um, a, finan- a certified financial planner. So somebody who can help you with, with really long-term thinking, who is also a jazz musician. So... Who better understands the flow and not flow of money in an artist's life than, than someone who has lived in that world? So just got super lucky. But it took, honestly, that only happened in the last two, three years um, that I was there because we never got it right. We just didn't get it right. So that's the second component, the person beyond the project project. The third is looking at the community of of funded artists and how to actually make them a community. So we did events, an orientation that brings them together and that event, they're mostly with each other and just a few of these outside consultants. Um, And then a retreat that um, brings them together again, but also brings in people from all the different um, fields that we intersect with and so, we bring in a group of what I call the opportunity creators, and these are people who can actually help um, people think about where their work might live and also often create very concrete opportunities. And I could, you know, fill the campus with the, the things that have come out of those Um Um, meetings so that's been really great and then the last component at least for now is engaging the public and that um, happens because we are not a presenter or producer ourselves for the most part Um, although that could change under new um, leadership but um, we're really an information broker and so we do a lot of promotion online uh, a lot of uh, blog posts a lot of uh, social media Um, we do uh, blasts around the premieres of the artists creative capital projects and then we keep supporting them as they develop new work with you know other kinds of of, um, media social media so project person community public so you can see it's this the series of of, um, circles that widen out Um, and their world what their worlds widened and their worlds changed and they um, often signified to us that, that it was the Creative Capital Grant that was catalytic for them. And in fact, we designed for that. That was something that was really important to me that we catch people at, at critical moments. You could be at a catalytic, catalytic place in your career at early on and mid-career and you know, even when you're a, a quite mature artist um and there are times where you just need to make work make work make work and then there are other times where you need to take a deep breath sit back and evaluate what you've done ask yourself if you want to continue in that vein those are teachable moments and um we try to catch people at those moments when we did catch people at those moments major things happened for them
1: so i know that this past year you're kind of sabbatical but departure from creative capital Has been very busy for you, and I wonder if you can talk a little bit about what you're doing, where you're looking for innovation, and people doing interesting and creative stuff, and and what you're learning.
0: Well, it is. You know, I'm. I think I'm going to have to give myself a little time to process everything I'm learning because it has been. It's been busier than working was, Um, so I'm flunking retirement, and just in in the most wonderful way, and having such a great time, so there are so many things I'm doing that I, is, that I feel I'm, I'm learning so much, you know, I, I go to a lot of, um, um, idea festivals, I was going to ask you about that, yeah, I, I just felt that, um, well, I had, I've been going pretty much through, my tenure at creative capital because i felt that as an organization funded on the cusp of a new century that was very important to hear what new century thinkers are thinking about in other fields because we support so many artists whose work just crosses so many boundaries and um and so i've, I've gone but um i decided after i retired to give myself a year of really going They are so expensive. I said, I thought I should take up drugs because a drug habit would be cheaper than going to these idea festivals. They cost so much money. But I have learned a lot and I've done a lot of thinking about the future of work. I've become kind of obsessed about the future of work. And obviously this is so important being in educational environments where you're thinking about sending people out into the world and I am, not convinced that educational institutions are doing a good job. And in fact, I I really think they're not thinking enough about what does somebody's trajectory look like, not year one out of school and year two out of school, but year 10 out of school and year 30 out of school. Because the world that this generation is going to inhabit does not look like the world that you and I came into. And the idea that you know we, that you would pursue a singular path for forty years is this is this is not going to be the world of the future. I think that there are certain um, skill sets um, that artists, the, the training that artists get, actually train them to be meaning makers, and at another slightly more optimistic panel on the future of work. This year, you know, one of the economists on that panel said that if you are a storyteller, you will always have a job. So I thought that was fascinating. He didn't go into too much detail. But something else that I just read recently used the phrase meaning-making and that we're going to need meaning-makers, that that's going to be high-order work. The making of meaning, because everything else will be done by a machine. So, how do we talk about the work we're doing? It's sometimes not in the um, exoticized language that we use, but how do we mesh the skill set that we're actually helping people build? with the skill set that is going to that are this is going to be the high order skills of of the next era. And I think in the arts we're often so insular and use so much jargon. You know, I used to say when we would do outreach meetings for the Creative Capital grant, I would say if you use the word simulacra in your proposal, you will probably not be getting a Creative Capital grant. And you know, we don't need to use language like that to talk about what we are doing.
1: We do not and I'm so appreciative for you to share all of this history and your insights, and uh, particularly your interest in thinking about the world of work for young people, both in the arts and beyond. Because I think it's a it's a question that many of us in, engage both in educational and artistic kind of training and support systems don't always think about in terms of the long tail. So right. it's it, it's essential. It is essential. Absolutely. So. As you progress into your retirement of over full-time work, uh, I wanted to thank you very much for being both thank at you. Bennington this weekend, but I'm also so for excited. everything you've done for artists over the last 20-plus years. I mean, what is the number is something like over $40 million in support and services. And
0: that 40, $45 million, I think, um, helped artists leverage an additional $100 million. I'm very proud of that
1: truly extraordinary. So thank you very much Ruby.
0: Thank you. Thank you so much for inviting me. It's exciting to be here. Create Now is hosted on the Bennington College campus at the Center for the Advancement of Public Action. The Create Now team is Rowan Edwards, Dylan O'Hara, Anna Saldinger, Chloe Shelford, and Robert Rancic. Today's show was audio engineered by Rowan Edwards and produced by Anna Saldinger. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to subscribe.